Uh, hello, everybody. How are you doing today? I believe today is the uh, 15th of October. This is episode 108 of the promotional Malpractice Live Chat. I am your uh, lovely host, Luke Thomas, uh, senior editor over at MMAfighting.com. Today on the docket, we're going to talk about Anderson Silva's potential, well, not potential, I should say, inevitable, impending, eminent, Return to the Ultimate Fighting Championship. That won't be till 2015, but it is around the corner. We'll talk about Mike Goldberg's epic meltdown on... Uh, oh, Jesus. Hold on. I don't know where that's coming from. But I'm going to put a stop to it. Here we go. There we go. Sorry about that. As you can see, <laughs> it's a, it's a one-man show here, and I got this one hair flopping in front. But we got it fixed. Uh, we'll talk about Mike Goldberg's epic flop on um, the NFL broadcast for the Packers, excuse me, the Vikings and the Lions, I believe. Um, I still haven't seen clips of the game and now I forget, but I believe that's what it was. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that and, and what it meant because I actually thought it was one of the bigger stories of the week, to be honest. But that aside, um, there's also UFC 179 impending. It's not too far away. So lots to get to. And, of course, any question or comment you may have, the best place to do that is, of course, on MMAfighting.com where this little window is embedded. Um, there were some audio problems last week. But we're going to fix that. A bit of an announcement to make, sort of, I don't want to get too much ahead of myself, but um, people have been asking, what about having intro music? What about having outro music? What about having other bells and whistles? We have figured out a way to make that happen. It's going to take us a couple of weeks uh, to implement it, but certainly before Thanksgiving, it's going to be here. So appreciate your patience. As you've noticed, I've slowly improved this product, um, and that's coming as well. Please tweet, Facebook, Instagram, tell the people on Reddit, do whatever you can to let folks know this guy here is a developer. He's actually a really cool guy. Um, about this podcast, about this. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. We are on Stitcher. Listen, subscribe, and of course, on MMAfighting.com's YouTube channel as well. All right. Now, with that lovely little uh, opening uh, discourse out of the way, sorry for the bumps in the road, but we're going to get this fixed, and then we're going to go and open um, the show. Shall we? We shall. All right. Let me hop to the top here. I feel like I've made these intros a lot shorter. A lot of y'all complain, oh, they're too long, they're the same thing over and over again. I mean, you gotta plug your product, right? Uh, okay, and also today, uh, we're drinking, oh wait, hold on. Sports related, Diet Dr. Pepper. And of course, I got my USA jacket on. I got it right after the USA got eliminated from City Sports, so it was on sale. Um, but uh, last night, they, they tied Honduras. One to one, and then Hamas Rodriguez absolutely putting on a clinic on Canada. Although Canada had strong defensive effort, but nonetheless had a golazo in the 75th minute of the second half. So um, check out managingmadrid.com. It's a great site that covers Real Madrid. Um, Stars and Stripes FC, so the uh, site and SB Nation for U.S. men's national and women's national team. So shout out to those folks. And Short Views, the Arsenal blog. All right. First question The Onnit, O N N I T. That's the supplement maker. Sponsor tax. I'm noticing more fighters are being sponsored by the company on it. Is on it Joe Rogan's company that he has a stake in subjected towards the sponsor tax? Good question. I don't know. I would suspect probably not. I don't imagine they have a ton of disposable income for um, that kind of thing. As we know, some brands are granted an exception. Dynamic Fastener being one of them. Um, 
But it's a good question to investigate. I don't know the answer to that. But, it, you know, I don't imagine that Onnit has a dramatic... They sponsor a couple of fighters. They sponsored um, Miss Two Jits. She's not a fighter, but the uh, Miss America girl who is uh, doing her journey through jiu-jitsu. I don't know how that's going, but she was sponsored for them for a while. Andrew Craig was sponsored by them for a while. He was one of the more first ones that I think it initially appeared in some of their ads. Uh, there's some other ones as well, but those were the first couple of ones that, that come to mind. Uh, but I don't know. But again, the, the the point to consider here is that does the UFC on occasion waive that fee for reasons that they deem valuable to either themselves or the fighters? The answer is yes, they will. Dynamic Faster being chief among them. Interestingly enough, they didn't waive it for Nike, which to me is part of the reason why Nike. And by the way, I have inside source telling me that's definitely one of the reasons why Nike let John Jones go was that, um, yeah, the brawl didn't help things, but. Really, it was that they weren't able to get much return on their investment. It's a little bit different in Brazil because of Anderson Silva and JDS. They have a little bit more market penetration. Um, there wasn't really a way for Jones to represent himself as a Nike athlete in the most important contexts. So, there you go. All right. Any updates, rumors, rumblings on Mike Goldberg's status with UFC on Fox shows? So, Pro Football Talk reported that he was done with them. Uh, based on what was written on Twitter and through the Fox's own uh, eventual releasing statement, sounds like he may not be done, but he's probably done for a while. Um, and you ask, will he retain his role as play-by-play -play announcer for the big Fox shows? I don't think his UFC work is in any jeopardy. It never really has been, which is sort of the issue here. And someone asks about it later in this comment thread, and I... I, I, I Bring it up because I saw them talking about it. People seem to act like I, I, I dislike Mike Goldberg in some personal way, as if I know him personally. There are many things to say about criticizing athletes and public figures. And there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. And certainly I am not the f I have done it wrong many times. Um, there are some people I am willing to criticize on a personal level. Because I feel like I'm able to lobby that argument. But there are that's 1%. 99.9% I cannot do that to. As a general rule, I cannot do that to. And, and it's really unfair to try and do that. Mike Goldberg, as a person, I, I have no claim. I don't know this, this man in that way. Um, from all indications, personally, I've heard nothing but glowing reviews. Friendly, generous, um, kind to strangers, kind to his, people he works around. Um, a good father, uh, a loyal husband. I've never... I've never ever had anyone on a personal level as a what kind of guy he is um, ever told me a negative thing about him and I have no reason to believe them to be wrong in fact when you look at him on the broadcast you know there's an issue about his performance but he often has this sort of all shucks kind of appeal and I think a lot of fans respond to that because he just seems like a nice guy who is trying his best um, and that's a that's a fine thing to be but that does not absolve you from Criticism. And look, man, I've never done an NFL broadcast where you have upwards of 10, 15, 20, 25. I believe uh, Dallas versus Seattle over the weekend did 30 million people. There's a lot of people watching those games. Now, 30 million people aren't going to watch um, the Vikings necessarily play the Lions, but that, there's still going to be a lot. I think that game was between 10 and 15, if I'm not mistaken, if not more. It's, it, it, it's a lot of people watching you. And when you do a job poorly, or at least in a mediocre way, um, th they're going to let you know about it. And social media is certainly the most obvious route to take in that regard. Moreover, I think Mike Goldberg was, you know, trying to sail um, into the wind a little bit here. There were 
anytime someone from MMA gets that kind of crossover thing, there's skepticism about their ability to translate, that you can be a big star in your own world and such a big enough star that people from another sports world will come and watch you. Um, but there's always a bit of hesitancy. Sports fans, I mean, MMA is a sport, but MMA fans and sports fans are more like cousins. They're not, they're not the same kind of people. Um, they're related, but it's a different family. It's a different branch of the, of the tree that it covers, combat sports and then sort of more traditional stick-and-ball sports. And so whenever someone from the, the, the combat side tries to cross over, there's always kind of skepticism about it. Which is sort of another piece of the problem here. Look, guys, I've, I, 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 again, I've never done anything to the size of an NFL broadcast, but I've been on TV a couple of times. When you do a job well, it feels really good. And when you do a job poorly, it hurts. And when people criticize you, either for stuff you've done on TV or anything else, criticism hurts. It doesn't feel good. It really, really affects you. And I, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've never been affected by things people say. Now, Every time someone criticizes me, no. And it's true, you get a little bit better at taking criticism, both good and bad. You learn to develop an ear for criticism. Um, I've also been one of those guys. I'm not above some of the things he's done. I've, I've certainly lashed out at people on Twitter. I've done it, you know, and I, I didn't have the misfortune of um, uh, doing it after such an important event like an NFL broadcast. But listen, here's sort of my point about all of this, right, is that one, it just goes to show you that what's tolerated in MMA does not work in the real world. I'm sure that if he had done that following a UFC broadcast where he had made a tantamount amount of errors, that nothing would have happened to him. How, how, could, how could it? The, the very head of the organization does things like that all the time, um, and, and it's no issue. I don't think they'd ever do that. I don't think they. I don't think they care particularly, uh, and that's part of the culture. And, that, and you can say that's good or you can say that's bad, but it is that. But that doesn't fly in the sports world. And the sports world is hardly one of these worlds that really polices the ranks um, to a significant degree or as much as they should. But it's certainly a lot more than what happens in mixed martial arts. It does not fly. The way in which you can act, there's, all, there's virtually no consequences for anything in MMA in terms of improper or imprudent or whatever kind of behavior you want to call it. There's almost no consequences for it especially relative to what happens in the sports world. In the sports world, there are certain P's and Q's you must follow because it is a huge audience, it is a diverse audience, and it's big sponsors spending big money for big attention. And you get in the way of that a little bit, and you are gone. You are gone. That's exactly what we found out. If you actually watch Goldberg's performance, and then listen, he makes the same. His NFL broadcast is basically not much different than what he did in MMA. He makes the same amount of errors. Some cosmetic, some fixable. If you'd give him, give him more chances, I'm sure he'd have done better. He's gotten better in MMA, although there's still problems with it. I think he, in, in, my major criticism about what he does in MMA is that he has reduced the amount of errors, although not entirely, but he certainly brought them down, but in the process has become more robotic, more rehearsed. And there's just sort of like a paint-by-numbers approach to the way in which he commented. So it's error-free for the most part, um, but not really compelling narrative. He's not really able to get off script in any kind of human way. That's my major criticism. So that's the first side of things, is that I hope everyone understands there's almost no consequences in MMA. But in the sports world, in the real sports world, it's a completely different beast. You're simply not allowed to get away with stuff like that. It wasn't his performance that did him in. I think it was the Twitter stuff that did him in because his performance had a couple of mess-ups, but it wasn't, you know, listen, Dick Stockton calls games, and Dick Stockton is terrible and old and repeatedly gets things wrong. But Dick Stockton probably doesn't go on Twitter and call people douches and tell them he's going to, 
you know, bang their mothers or whatever else he did. That's a problem. That's a problem. Again, I've done it. I'm guilty. You know, uh, I don't know that I would have done it after an NFL broadcast, but I've done it. Um, I didn't think I'd done particularly well at the Glory broadcast in Denver, but I didn't lash out on people on Twitter afterwards. I've done it on other things. But anyway, you get the idea. Here, here's the other part about this, and this is sort of the central claim. Everyone's like, oh, you got some vendetta against him. You got some vendetta against him. No, I really don't. I really don't. I don't know the guy personally. He could be a great guy. I mentioned at the beginning of this, answering this question. In fact, he probably is. I'm willing to bet my mortgage he's a great guy. I'm not concerned about what kind of guy he is. I'm concerned about what kind of broadcaster he is. And in mixed martial arts, the fans are endlessly forgiving of people who have a suspect ability to do their job properly. I can assure you, if I don't do my job properly, Vox Media isn't going to have that extend that same level of sympathy that mixed martial arts fans seem to do. That if you're sort of one of the own, this communal approach, well, is he with us or is he not with us? This, this naked tribalism. Are you one of us? Are you, a, are you an MMA guy? Then you can do whatever you want. No, I, I really think that approach is toxic. I think it's harmful. I think it's bad for the sport. I think it's bad for the fan base. I don't think it's good for anybody. Listen, Goldberg's not going on there and, and doing the Mike Francesa where he's falling asleep on the air. And he's not horrible at his job, but he's been consistently underperforming for years, if you ask me. I thought a change should have been made a long time ago. UFC values loyalty. They don't care what I have to say. They're not going to replace him. That's fine. But I'm not going to stop making more criticisms because it becomes old in this particular case. Or I'm not going to abandon the idea. I may not beat the drum constantly about it like I used to. I used to be way more vocal about it. But the same thing, when Showtime was using uh, Goldberg for their broadcast, he was bad at it. Doesn't make him a bad guy, doesn't make him not a fan of mixed martial arts, doesn't make him a, a terrible person who you know, doesn't pay his taxes on time. Just means he's bad at that particular aspect of the responsibilities to which he was tasked. And there's things I do. You're welcome to it. I'm not, I'm not above this either. People are going to kill me for things all the time. I make mistakes all the time. And when, they're, and when they're mean, or they're even when they're truthful, that's the worst kind. It hurts, man. It hurts. And it's not easy to deal with. I'm not going to tell you that it's easy to deal with. It must have been very painful for Goldberg to read those tweets and be like, God, I, I didn't mean to, or I, I made one or small errors. Like, I, I carried the broadcast for three hours, and you're pointing out a couple of things I did wrong. I can see why he would be upset about that. But you, know, you want to play with the big dogs, you have to act clean as a whistle. Clean as a whistle. And I'm sorry, you know, um, the last thing I'd say about this is, you know, everyone talks about, oh, the MMA media is so negative. Oh, they hate MMA. They're so negative. They're so negative. We're negative. You haven't seen anything compared, uh, compared in terms of negativity compared to what's going on in the sports media. The sports media, the regular sports media, will cut you to fish bait. MMA media criticism, first of all, isn't nearly as mean as it could or should be. That's a fact. I can make that case easily. The problem with MMA media, if anything, is that it cheerleads too much. Not that everyone's so negative. No, sir. No, ma'am. Not today. Not ever. It is fantasy. Literal fantasy to think MMA media is too negative. It's not negative enough. Number one. And number two, even if it was negative, which it's not, even if it was negative, it doesn't have the same power. Pro football talk, the, 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 when you mess up on the, on the real level, on the NFL level, there, you, there is no shelter for you to hide. He got cut up by pro football talk, Yahoo, and I mean big Yahoo, business insider, big lead. All these places ripped him to shreds.
ripped him to shreds. And then people who were major um, figures on Twitter, on their own Twitter feeds. Oh, my God, you know, Drew Magary, uh, who's a writer for Deadspin. I think he has, you know, over 100,000 Twitter followers just killing him, you know. Like, there's no shelter, man. So if you think we're negative, like, we're not negative enough. And even if we were, we don't have the same power. There's not many of us to, like, elicit change in the same kind of way. Everyone in MMA, from the fans all the way up to the promoters, are babied by the media. <laughs> so this idea, I read it all the time, MMA media is so negative. You just don't watch sports, do you? And forget sports media, which this is all entertainment reporting. You want to see, like, real reporting? You know what I mean? Like for serious hardcore issues about life and death. Mess with somebody over at The Intercept or even The New York Times or The Washington Post. Washington Post is bringing down governors. And you could say, well, that's not negative reporting. Bull, bull S. Part of it is editorializing and the other part of it is just unflinching examination of error. Unflinching. So, you know, next time someone tells you that MMA media is super harsh, it's like you, you, have, to, you have to have skin that must be unbelievably thin to believe that. It's, it's not harsh enough. Overeem. If Overeem had the ability to take punishment like JDS, where do you think his peak in the heavyweight division would be? Top five, top three, stuck in the same boat as JDS. Probably stuck in the same boat. I don't think even with a chin like JDS, he's going to beat Velasquez. But I'd put him neck and neck with, with, with uh, JDS. He'd be 2A, 2B. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, I just got told this. In case you want to mention this when you talk about the Anderson Presser, um, he asked for the UFC to promote a presser because it wasn't easy to get sponsors after he said he wouldn't fight for the title again. That's interesting. So perhaps part of the reason why he says he wants to fight for the title after clearly saying not um, is that maybe he wants to get some money. Understandable. All right. But yes, I mean, I mentioned this before. I think on... MMA hour with Ariel Hawani about Overeem. Everyone keeps talking about Overeem being this like huge disappointment and, and is he the biggest bust in, uh, in UFC history? And there are many ways to say in which that he is, but one of the major considerations you have to have about Overeem, it's like when you watch him on the offensive, even against good fighters, it's not his skill that's a problem. It's not. It's the fact that he has this inability to absorb damage. I mean, yes, he has some defensive liabilities. I think some of his defensive striking is a little more porous than it could be. He's much better on offensive terms. I don't think his defense is as good as his offense, but his offense is better than just about everybody, particularly in the striking. His, his problem is this: his, that he just can't take a shot like he used to. I don't mean his chin necessarily is bad because Roth will hit him up here. wasn't even on the chin, but just some guys have a durability generally that is better than others. They're able to stay out of trouble better than others. I think that's part of it. I think one reason is that Overeem has developed a style that was partly predicated on, I'm going to wade through a number of shots. I don't mean wrestling shots, all that, that too, but like just damage to the head, damage to the jaw. And I'm just going to wade through it on, on route to doing what I like to do. And I think some guys sort of more carefully find themselves in position to launch strikes. I think that's, you can make that an indictment about Overeem as well. But like when he's offensive, man, his technique is clean as hell. What you're seeing is not a mistake or some fluke or he's only better at doing it against easier guys. Or, you know, yes, you could do it against easier guys, but 
there's more to the story there. He, he's something I, I don't want to over dramatize the example, but again, he always reminds me of Jonathan Goulet. Jonathan Goulet was one of these guys, incredibly talented mixed martial artist. But when they got to the highest level, his inability to take a shot from those guys, not from lower tier guys, but from the higher tier guys, it, it, it held him back in his career a little bit. And so um, Overeem hasn't always been that way, but I think he's trending in that way. And it's something that's really magnified given the weight class that he's competing in and some of the guys who are around today. You know, do, you, do we really believe heart and soul that Ben Rothwell, who's a very talented fighter, a credible talent, deserves all the praise in the world, won that fight fair and square, but do we really believe he's the better all-around fighter? I, I have a hard time accepting that idea. I could be wrong, certainly. Again, he beat Overeem as clean as day, but you know, I don't think that Overeem winning that K1 title was some sort of fluke. I don't, I don't think that the skills he's developed are... Uh, well, they only work against guys who fall prey to standing guillotines. I, I just don't believe that. I believe, on the other hand, that he's got some defensive liabilities, both tactically and strategically, because there's a difference. Um, but I also believe that that absorption of damage issue has, is, is going to cost him. Uh, Anderson Silva post-Diaz fight. Say Anderson wins, which I expect him to do against Diaz. Who do you match him up with next if you are Joe Silva? Do you throw him into the title contention picture and fight other top five guys, or is he at the stage of his career where you put him in fun fights? Well, it sounds like that that title run is going to be uh, the difference. Based on what I'm being told here by our own uh, Guillermo Cruz, um, maybe making this about the title was sort of key for him to get the kind of sponsors and attention and adulation that he needs for this venture to, to work successfully. Because remember, for the longest time, he was like, nah, I'm done fighting for the title. It's Chris Weidman's. And again, most of that was post-fight. But nevertheless, we're not getting... Like, he, when he lost the first time, he was like, I'm back. Remember I back in the whole video? I didn't get that feel this time um, for obvious reasons. But now they're trying to push it. So I would say if he beats Diaz, I really wouldn't be shocked if they gave him the winner of Belfour versus uh, Weidman. I really wouldn't. A sort of once and for all match. Um, yeah, I'll read this. I'll make this quick. I don't want to make all these things about like, all things about my life, but I'll just get through this. Luke, I'm a longtime uh, fan, avid follower of your work. Thank you. Uh, my 34-year-old aunt was diagnosed with breast cancer. 34, wow. She is the mother to a nearly one-year-old daughter, elementary school teacher, and longtime activist in, in Milwaukee. Um, we've set up a page to shed light on her story and bring awareness to breast cancer. I was hoping you would be willing to share the link attached below and utilize the hashtag do something with Kathy on your Twitter feed to help enlighten her days during treatment and recovery, which the link is listed below. You guys can go to yourselves and do that as well. Would you be willing to buzz your hair for breast cancer awareness if I send you a family buzzing my own hair. Um, so I'll, I'll just tell you this real quick. My sister was diagnosed with breast cancer um, a couple months ago. Now, I think there's, the, the long-term prognosis is pretty good, to be honest. Um, she's made no secret about it, and I'm not going to say any more about it than I already have. Suffice to say, though, I don't think she necessarily, in her particular way of dealing with, with it, would want me to shave my head. And so I would rather follow what she would ask than uh, anyone else, but I'm happy to share your link, happy to share your hashtag, and to say, it's not uncommon for a lot younger women to be getting these kinds of issues. So um, I'm glad you're bringing attention to it, and, and, I'll, and I'll do your bidding. I will, I will send that out. But I don't think I'm going to be shaving my head anytime soon. Although I'm not against it, I'm just going to follow her lead. 
All right, pre-fight medical. Luke, what do the doctors in a pre-fight medical do? It seems quite frequent that the fighters go into the fight with broken bones and other serious injuries, and they usually tell the public sometime after the fight. I know fighters will lie about the injury, so they do not have to be pulled from the fight for various reasons, money, pride, etc. Can you take us through what the doctors check? Are they not doing a good job, or are the fighters really good at hiding it? It's more the latter, although the, te the checks are not comprehensive. I mean, listen, here's the problem. If a like, when you go to the doctor and you tell him you're sick, uh, your stomach hurts, um, I got an ingrown hair that is boiled up, or whatever the case may be, he's relying upon you to tell him what's wrong. If you don't tell him what's wrong, he or she has to make some kind of diagnosis about what it is. And if you give them incomplete inf information, they can make a diagnosis that has nothing to do with what you have. Even some conditions are so hard to treat that you can give them all of the symptoms and they won't really know what to do. If you have a broken arm and um, they're not x-raying your whole body because they're not going to, um, and they touch certain parts of your body, if you can just hide the pain, how do they really check that unless you have a bone sticking out? So here's my point. There's all kinds of medical tests you have to do, vision tests, blood tests. Um, some places require CAT scans. All the sort of pre-fight medicals you have to do in terms of logged-in paperwork, that all has to be done. And then the doctor will go and check your blood pressure and talk to you about how you're feeling and check certain things and certain joints and sort of visually inspect you, look at your hands, look at your face, see for any kind of, there are any kind of, remember Alexander Gustafson had that whole issue because he needed the stitches and, and is it going to break open? They'll do some sort of like spot checks in that kind of way. But look, the test and any kind of medical evaluation generally relies on the person who's being evaluated to be forthcoming about what has happened. If they're not, things aren't going to get fixed. If you have a busted ankle and it's not too visually swollenly bad, perhaps something else is wrong with it or whatever the case may be, and you can hide the pain and it doesn't cosmetically look that bad, you can fight with it. This happens all the time, all the time. Hey, have you had a concussion? You had one a week ago. No, I feel fine. If you can hide the symptoms, how do they know? Maybe the CAT scan was done a day before that. Or maybe they did a CAT scan and for some reason whatever ill effects there are didn't show up. So there, there's lots of problems with the pre-fight medical. It's that it relies on fighter honesty. And fighter honesty is something you're not really going to get when they have an incentive to not be honest. When they have an incentive that they to compete because they need the money or whatever the case may be, what can the doctors do? This isn't magic. The doctor-patient relationship is one where the patient tells him or her what is wrong with them. If they don't tell them what's wrong with them and it's outwardly impossible to tell, at least very difficult, there's nothing they can really do. So that's the problem with this. And how you fix that, I'm not really sure. You can have more thorough screenings. You can create penalties for lying pre-fight. But even then, I think guys would still go through with it. The penalties can never be more severe than the act of going through with it and getting paid, potentially winning, getting your win bonus. Um, it's, it's a, it's, I, I don't know how do you solve that problem. But it's not that doctors aren't doing enough. They can only do what the patient or the person, or the fighter in this case, allows them to. You can check blood pressure. You can look at their pre-fight medicals. That's all fine. But if in the case of someone like Ryan Ford, who claimed to have had a broken arm, if it was just a tiny fracture, visually you can't tell, at least not much, what can they do? How's your arm? Fine. Looks fine. What are you going to do? Oh, I don't believe you. I'm going to, I have this sixth sense that you're not, you're not telling me the truth. No, it doesn't work that way. It's impossible.
Best commentating team. Luke, your best two commentators in MMA, and should they include a third member, someone that keeps an unofficial scorecard like they have in boxing? UFC used to use Eddie Bravo for the unofficial scorecard, which I loved. I don't know why they got rid of it, but I love that. Um, oh, someone mentions it here. Yeah, they used to have Eddie Bravo doing the unofficial scorecard. I thought it was great. Um... I, here's what's funny about that. We don't really see all the permutations that I'd like to see. You know, you don't see that really in other sports too. But so, for example, there's this Joe Buck, um, Troy Aikman combination that's always seems to be together for football and Fox. But like, Brian Stans got to be one of my all-time favorite color guys. I love Morrow in play-by-play. I love um, Michael Schiavello in play-by-play. I do like John Anik as well. Um, I like Rogan in the role that he's in. Um, I'm trying to think who else. I, I think the Bellator guys are both great. So I would just love to be in a world where we could make per, interesting permutations. Like what if we got a Michael Schiavello and Jimmy Smith combination or Michael Schiavello and Brian Stan combination. That might be my favorite, you know. If you could have Schiavello, Pat Miletic is good. Um, his politics are crazy, but he's a good commentator. So so that so that, that would be my, I guess my answer would be Schiavello and um, Stan, but they've never worked together. So I don't know how it would sound, but I feel like they would complement each other's energy. They would have an easy, natural rapport. It's just a hunch. But there's lots of good combinations out there. I also think that, you know, you're talking about three people in a booth. I think that Al Bernstein, Paulie Malinaji, and Morrow are really good for Showtime Boxing. And then even when they do that panel with Kenny Rice, it gets a little redundant with Kenny Rice. I don't know why he's there necessarily, but three-man booths, I like them a lot. And I remember one time... Uh, you know, Randy Couture was a good third man in the booth sometimes. Somebody who can be a little more technical than Joe. Not to say Joe's not technical, but I mean a fighter who's been in there, really sort of a high-level guy who can also talk. Um, that can be a really good compliment. So you have sort of the range, right? The play-by-play -play guy whose role is predominantly calling the action, setting up the color guy, taking you in and out of different segments, uh, throwing to different parts of the production team and then receiving it and so forth, throwing it to Joe when Joe's in the cage to the post-fight interview, and then taking it and sort of guiding the broadcast. That's what the play-by-play -play guy does. He's essentially the maestro who runs the thing, and everyone sort of follows his lead. Then you have the color guy and Joe Rogan who sort of explains what the action is meaningful and gives it context. UFC kind of gets this relationship a bit confused sometimes, but that's generally what happens. And then you can have someone else on top of that who can really be specific, or not just that, in terms of their specificity, but maybe they have fought someone who's currently in there and they can share, share details like that. That, to me, is the, is the interesting way in which you add a third person. But you don't just add a third person for, you know, for, oh, how would they sound together? That's sort of like a throwing the book at the wall and expecting some kind of magic. And really, the, 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 the trio that I cited in Morrow and Paulie and Al, it's exactly that. You have Morrow who is guiding the broadcast, basically talking about what's happening round over round taking it in and out of different production elements because he's the guide. Then you have the, the color guy in Al Bernstein who's setting up some context, describing what's happening, telling you why things matter. And then you have Paulie Malignaggi who's given you a really high-level degree of specificity, of high-level technique, of guys he's faced against. You know, that, that, kind, of, that kind of sort of escalating um, combination really works well. Dan Hardy return. Do you think the possible return is a good idea? After two years out, having already landed a cushy commentary job and suffering from a suspect heart condition, 
Do you think he should enjoy having finished on two wins, or would you like to see the outlaw ride again at 155 pounds? Only if he wants to. If he doesn't, I'm fine. I think he's done a bang-up job as a commentator. I have very little to, weigh, uh, little to say in the way of uh, negativity. Not that he's perfect at the job, but well, but you know, but this stage in his career has done has done pretty well. He's been a quick learner on the job, so I really appreciate that. Um, also, his heart condition, you know, it's certainly a problematic one. But if you recall that there were other medical experts that said it should not preclude him from being able to compete. I think he took the time off for a number of reasons. One was for that condition, but for other ones as well. You know, if your heart's not in it to compete at that kind of clip, it's probably best not to. Um, but, you know, I think that the best, again, I think the best of Dan Hardy from a competitive sense is long past us. That's not to say he can't compete against the right kind of opponent in the right kind of circumstance. Moreover, be valuable to the UFC in an era when they're trying to make a renewed UK push, mostly through Ireland, but they're not giving up on, on England or other places as well. I know Ireland's not, not part of the UK, but you know what I mean, like the general, um, the general area. It's the same market in some sense, right? How about that? Um, so I think he's viable in that context, but you know, some sort of renewed effort where he's fighting again in a regular calendar schedule, I think that's just over. If he can compete one or two more times, maybe three, uh, that might be impressive. But I, you know, when you're this, when your foot is this far out the door, it's out the door. You know, you you are capable of returning in limited controlled circumstances, but the window for that is ultra narrow, ultra narrow. So am I against him fighting Diego Sanchez or something like that? No, and probably not, but uh, these are not going to be sustained efforts no matter what, success or failure. Uh, let's see. Someone's asking me, Ronda Rousey on a recent podcast interview with Michael Buffer stated that, that other women's UFC fighters are well taken care of when a lot of them have never even made a locker room bonus compared to their male counterparts and some are not even drawing and win money at roughly 7 to 10K for show money. Heck, even Kat Zingano made 18K for her last UFC win over Amanda Nunes. I, I, I am always curious about this. Why do people look to well-established UFC fighters for like analysis about how the company is to other fighters. For all intents and purposes, maybe Rousey believes this. I don't know. I'm certainly not accusing her necessarily of not saying what she believes. She very well might be, and that's important to note. However, only people who have, like, and GSP at the end of his career made some bones about some different issues related to drug testing, but by and large, do we really expect Ronda Rousey to come out and say women's MMA fighters aren't making enough? I would never expect her to say that, ever, even if she necessarily believed it, unless she was like truly, truly bothered by it. Maybe she doesn't know. Maybe this is what she's assuming. I don't know. I don't know why Rousey said it. But I'm always like, I'm always wondering when people are like, do you, th do you, th you know, like they never consider the possibility that a fighter might be telling them things for reasons that have nothing to do with what is actually happening. Because they have ulterior motives, or they have some sort of veil of ignorance, or whatever the case may be. Or they may they believe that and they're just mistaken. I don't know. You tell me, guys. Do you think women's MMA fighters make a ton of money? Do you think they're properly compensated? Do you think they live in a world where they are able to negotiate in a collective body and therefore maximize their earning potential? 
Are we going to have this debate over and over and over again? <laughs> really? Again, everyone. Everyone wants to know what my view on fighter pay is. I will say it again until folks realize it. Fighters do not earn even close to what they could be making because, and I say fighters generally, not individual ones, but fighters generally, because they don't act in a collective way to maximize their earning potential. When they do, you will see a dramatic rise overall, if that ever happens. Until such a day, maybe they're making quote unquote enough for you to think that's enough. Oh, hey, Nate Diaz made 60 grand. I'd love to make 60 grand in a year. We've talked about this. That's the worst analysis you can possibly ever have. Incredibly bad analysis, but, but that's the world we live in. Until they act collectively for collective interest to maximize earning potential, they don't make nearly what they could make. When they act in collective interest, collectively, to maximize earning potential, then we can look at how much they're earning. Hey Luke, Will Brooks recently accused Bellator of their lack of promoting him as their 155 pound champ and is claiming that they are promoting him under Michael Chandler. I think there's a lot of merit to what Will is saying, even from a standpoint of the poster where Will, the champ, is situated behind Chandler as well as in the billing. I get that Bellator has to put a, a, a lot of money in homegrown talent like Chandler as one of the faces of Bellator. But to an extent, the same can be made by Brooks as well being a homegrown talent of Bellator. Is Brooks correct in his accusations leveled against the promotion? Are they putting enough hype behind their 155-pound champ? Chandler has lost his last two bouts with the promotion and could indeed lose this rematch again. Yeah, spoke to uh, Michael Chandler, let's see, how many months ago? I think this was August I spoke to Michael Chandler for that Bellator Media Day. You could say he's making excuses. I'll just tell you what he told me, that he competed with a terrible injury, should never have fought that way. I thought his performance in that Will Brooks fight was just really poor and not up to his potential. Um, also, Will Brooks performed a lot better than I thought he was going to compete. If you're asking me who I'm going to pick in the rematch, I'm going to pick Michael Chandler. Um, nothing against Will Brooks, but I thought that what lost Michael Chandler the bout was his strategy, not his skill. And if that can be amended, he, he should have no problem. Not no problem, but he should be able to get the task done. How about that? Um, as for the way they're promoting him, you know, I, I, I don't think Will Brooks is making things up. I don't. You know, listen, Scott Coker has a reputation of being an honest broker and a guy who's a fighter first kind of um, promoter. But he also understands that there's a certain bottom line to the organizational needs too, you know. There were guys at Strikeforce who were unhappy with Scott Coker. It's impossible to make everybody happy. Michael Chandler has been a fixture of their promotion for a long time. I think the promotion also, I, I don't know this to be true, but I have the hunch that the promotion thinks that Michael Chandler had an off night against Will Brooks and he's going to resume being champion again. Um, fans are more familiar with Michael Chandler. There's already more hype behind Michael Chandler. Michael Chandler has been ranked in the top 10 at various rankings before. And Will Brooks sort of like popped in out of nowhere. Michael Chandler has a certain look and a certain aesthetic that promoters and television executives like. To me, it's not necessarily surprising that he's getting the, the, the um, more favorable treatment as Will Brooks presents it. Um, that will change if Will Brooks, Will Brooks, Will, Jesus Christ, that will change if Will Brooks can win again. Um, but I don't, I don't think that his observations are crazy or without merit. Do you feel like Will Brooks is the centerpiece of these efforts. Um, in fact, let me look up something here real quickly. Bellator Fan Fest. Who's in that? 
Yeah, look at the Bellator Fan Fest. Tito Ortiz, Stefan Bonner, Randy Couture, Hoist Gracie, Ken Shamrock, Mo Lawal, and Michael Chandler. Now, this is taking place in San Diego. You could say, well, Michael Chandler lives in San Diego. He trains at Alliance. Okay, but Mo Lawal doesn't. In fact, Mo Lawal trains at American Top Team, the same place Will Brooks trains. Kind of interesting. Also, you could make the argument if you wanted to, well, Technically speaking, there is no lightweight champion. Now, Will Brooks is the interim champion. Um, a belt that was created in the Rebney era under its own ridiculous kind of conditions. How meaningful is that belt, really? Not saying I agree with that argument. I don't really have too much. I don't really care one way or the other. But I don't think it's crazy to say that Michael Chandler has been and continues to be a more forward presence in Bellator's promotional operations. <clears throat> Vanderlei Silva's next move. In a recent post, Silva has suggested big news and an end to the monopoly, with many speculating some kind of comeback abroad. However, could you explain the possible legal implications of a move to an organization outside of the U.S., such as 1FC, or if this would even be possible? Um, I don't think anyone's going to sign him as long as he's under contract with the UFC. To me, one of the funnier issues about this whole thing is, um, this, and this to me is kind of crazy, I don't know how the UFC is going to handle it. And frankly, I'm not sure what the right answer is, although I, I lean certainly one direction over the other. Namely, during the Bellator, what do you want to call it? <laughs> uh, Lockup of Eddie Alvarez. There was a lot of consternation about it. And part of that consternation was, this is a guy in Eddie Alvarez who clearly wants to leave your organization. Moreover, you can make the argument that he was done with his contract. Now, the, Bellator had the matching rights, but was essentially at the end of it. Could shop his marketability and his value elsewhere. And in fact, received an offer that was far more lucrative. Lu, lu, Jesus, today is the day, y'all. Far more lucrative by a competing and frankly superior organization in the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and yet was still held. And what did... UFC brass say at that time. They said, hey, listen, we would never hold a guy who didn't want to be here. If he was that unhappy, we would let him go. And to their point, they made Rampage Jackson another offer. They made, uh, I believe they made Chick Congo another offer at the end of his career. These, these guys were not cut. They were released because they wanted, well, I should say they didn't re-sign with the UFC. But they weren't cut for, like, um, poor performance, even if they were on a bit of a skid towards the end of their career. And I think the UFC generally believes that. So what are they going to do with Vanderlei Silva, who I believe still has a fight or two left on this contract? Are they going to release him because they believe in the principle of not holding a guy who doesn't want to be there? Or are they going to hold him because the way in which things have soured leaves them no choice but to want to stamp out the efforts? I, I, don't, know, I don't know what they're going to do. It's an interesting question. Um... I would suspect that they're probably going to release him at some point. That would be my guess. And I, I would prefer that. Like, yes, things ended poorly with Vanderlei, largely because of his own efforts, um, although not exclusively. But whatever their issues between the two, um, do you continue to hold a guy under contract who clearly is no longer willing to be there? Um, they haven't always done that. They've, asked, they've let guys sit out or classified as certain things so they couldn't go. But um, 
I'm interested to know what will happen here. <clears throat> now, of course, there's also a difference between if you have a six-fight contract and then you fight all six and they don't match or they give you an offer you're not happy with and you go somewhere else, that's, that's one thing. Um, it's different when you still have a couple extra fights left on the contract. So they may be just saying that, well, listen, he's got a contract with us. Whereas Bellator was saying, hey, we matched it, and there was a lot of dispute about whether they actually had. There's a di the, the scenarios are not equivalent, but clearly Vanderlei Silva, it's hard to envision a scenario where he gets welcomed back or even given a fight by UFC, even if he begs for one. So what do you do with him there? I don't know. Ben Henderson at 170. But by the way, if, if 1FC tried to sign him in some capacity, he'd be taken to court, Vanderlei would, in the U.S. because he has a legal contract that extends globally. That doesn't mean he necessarily won't go over there and compete for 1FC and try or get paid, but he'd get sued pretty quickly and have some of his assets seized over here. It, it would not be good for him. It wouldn't, it wouldn't technically stop him from trying, but it would make the act of doing it rather prohibitive. Ben Henderson at 170. It's been reported that Benson wants to m make a move up to the welterweight division after one more fight at lightweight, does he do well? Is this mostly like a mistake? Uh, I don't think so. I think he's a big, strong bruiser. He's never had a problem dealing with the physicality of lightweight. Welterweight's a bit of a different animal, but Ben Henderson's getting bigger himself. These guys making that weight cut down is hard. He often looks incredibly sucked out. He has a very, as we all know, aggressive, um, energy-consuming style that maybe a... a, a easier cut only facilitates it might put him in a size disadvantage a little bit but i don't think tremendously i don't think he's hugely outsized by rick story and in fact maybe rick story being at the lab has sort of taught him you know what i'm i'm big enough to deal with some of these guys because rick story is strong for that division not necessarily the biggest guy but he's you know known you know you, you submit with a head and arm triangle brian foster within his guard you know you're pretty strong right that's that's hard to do if not outright impossible, um, and, and he did it. So, you know, maybe Ben Henderson's like, if I can hang with him physically, I should be fine. He's, you know, when you're, not, when you're 22 and 23, you're, you, you just get bigger over time. Not, not everyone, of course, but it's just harder to keep that weight down as time goes on. And He's probably at a position now where he wants to move up and try. And obviously a lightweight, he's got some issues. He couldn't beat Dos Anjos. Um, I think Norman Gamandov would beat him. Obviously, Pettis has his number, it seems like, so why not try? Your thoughts on the Korean zombie having to step away from the mixed martial arts world for the next two years to serve a mandatory term in South Korean Army. Do you see his absences from the 145 division shaking things up a bit, and do you possibly see him making a successful, successful company? Today is the day, y'all. I'm telling you. Today is the day. Can you believe I've been doing radio since 2008 and I still can't enunciate properly on certain days? And see him making a successful comeback within that time two years later by being gone that long. A uh, couple of things. My understanding is that, one, he'd still be able to train. Two, um, this is not a job where he'd be in the field at all the time, you know, being unable to correct for proper diet and sleep and things like that. I don't think that this Army gig is that taxing one, at least the specific one that he's apparently going into. So he's still going to be able to train. And I think that he might even be able to compete in certain circumstances. You know, a lot of guys who are active duty military are occasionally able to find fights. And 
it may not be easy and maybe he can't, but I, I don't want folks thinking this is a scenario necessarily from all reports that he's going to be shuttled away from a training mat and won't have rolled in two years. No, he's going to be pretty active. That doesn't mean there won't be components of rust in some whatever return to competition that he has, especially given how long he's been off since that UFC 163 Aldo fight with the injury. But nevertheless, I don't think this is the end of him. Um, it's an unfortunate bump in the road, but it's not one that you have to look at like, wow, how dramatically is this going to hurt things? Um, certainly won't be fun or pleasant, but this is not some kind of ultimate deal breaker about his career. I don't think so, at least not from the outset. It's interesting, though, like it took him this long to go to South Korea. I interviewed Marshall Zelaznik, I want to say at the end of 2013 or maybe the beginning of 2014. I can't remember now. Um, and they were saying South Korea was certainly on the agenda. Now, it looks like that won't happen until 2015. Well, actually, it definitely won't happen until 2015 at the earliest. Their Asian efforts have been a bit of a um, – have hit some roadblocks. And I can tell you, I know for a fact, that they were supposed to go to the Philippines in June and didn't. Um, I know Brandon Vera was supposed to be on that card. I know Mark Munoz was supposed to be on that card, and they didn't go. Um, so that's taken some issues. They, it looks like they closed their China office. They, had, they fired Mark Fisher. Um, there was this article that recently came out. I can link it up, saying there was even still tension between that and the Singapore office. That one Singapore show they had with um, um, Tarek Safadine as the headliner didn't make money. So they've hit a couple bumps in the road. They've hit a couple bumps in the road in, in, the, in the Asian markets. And um, some of the Japanese shows have gone well, I think, but uh, with, with, with that deal they have with Dentsu. But nevertheless, as this comprehensive effort, they've, they've got some issues to iron out. And so perhaps that has delayed the entry into South Korea and, and consequently made them unable to use the Korean zombie in a way that would have been um, better. But nevertheless, maybe if they go there, maybe this enables him to actually get a fight. I'm not sure where he's going to be stationed whether it's Seoul or some other portion of the country. But um, I don't think it's necessarily a deal-breaker, but it is problematic. Mark Hunt, next potential title fight against Cain Velasquez should he win. There have been whispers in the MMA community referring to Mark Hunt and him possibly getting the next title shot against Cain Velasquez should he beat, that being Cain, Fabricio Verdum and Dos Santos beating Miocic. Do you believe this to be true? And if so, what chance do you think Mark Hunt stands against Cain? Not a very good one. I don't think anybody – listen, let's just state this plainly. No one in the UFC heavyweight division stands a good chance against Cain Velasquez. That doesn't mean he can't lose. He's certainly not, um, you know, some perfect creature of war that is incapable of being defeated. But he's a man, you know. Nevertheless, uh, no one in that division on a good day, Cain Velasquez's good day, is going to beat him. It's, it's not going to happen. If he comes prepared and he's healthy and there's no other countervailing issues, um, Cain Velasquez won't lose that title anytime soon. These guys are not good enough to beat him. Not Mark Hunt, not, Cain, not, not Fabricio Verdum, none of them. Um, now, again, maybe he comes in injured, maybe he loses focus, maybe his preparation is poor, and something happens. But a properly trained, healthy, ready to rock Cain Velasquez does not lose to anyone in that division, flat out. He's the guy. Okay. That said, um, you're asking who moves into that slot next if it's the outcomes you have of Velasquez beating Verdum and Dos Santos beating Miocic. I think they'd go with a third fight with Dos Santos before they do Hunt. I think Hunt is going to get a fight against the, that Barnett fight that he wants. I think if he wins that one, look out. Then, something ha then something's going to happen. But um, I don't think he, he comes into that slot. I wouldn't rule it out. I don't think it's the craziest idea. But... 
they're going to want to keep Velasquez on pay-per-view. And they're not going to want to do a pay-per-view in Australia. They're going to want to keep Mark Hunt to the extent possible in Australia for the time being. A fight with Barnett would be a great headliner over there. So, to me, that's what kind of holds the issue up. Eventually, listen, if the guy merits a title shot, you got to put him on pay-per-view. Okay, fair enough. But there's still business concerns at play about these markets, about New Zealand, about all of Southeast Asia, really. Um, you know, whether you want to include Australia in that, you know, is up to you. But I just mean sort of that region of the world, from the Asian countries down to New Zealand, down to Australia itself, they're trying to promote this part, MMA and UFC in this part of the world. That means you've got to have shows down there. Um, just sort of fast-forwarding hunting to that place may not necessarily be the best for that kind of business consideration, even if you feel like it'd be a fun fight, Mark Hunt versus Cain Velasquez. But I think Cain Velasquez would take him down and just maul him. Pre-fight press conference. Luke, wanted to ask you, why does the UFC have a pre-fight press conferences? For some events and other events receive a media day treatment. There doesn't seem to be any kind of pattern to this behavior. It's a complicated issue. Um, I've talked about UFC uh, PR staff about this before. Really depends on a lot of factors. Number one, um, what kind of card is it? Do they have a lot of guys they can do a media day with? Um, two, if there's been a lot of pre-fight coverage, is there really a point to having a press conference? Maybe it's better to have a media day where you can you know, get more individualized attention. I can tell you as a reporter, I did a media day for 173, right? So it was the, the uh, John Jones Teixeira event. You know, you're able to get, it's, it feels like scrums, but if you're forward in your questioning and you kind of physically put yourself in the front of the stage in these guys, you can get a lot of alone time with them. And sometimes they get off stage and they do other things and you can grab them and stuff. So like, it works out kind of well uh, in that regard. So it really depends how interested is the market. Um, is, it, is it easier from a, from a you know, because if you want to do a press conference on one day and then, you know, a weigh-in on one day and then it winds up being a lot of different factors you have to do, and a lot of event staging you have to do. If you can combine them all in sort of one day, why not? So I think they're still experimenting too. They're trying to figure out what's the right method do we do press conferences for title fights? Do we do press conferences for non-title fights? Do we do media days for main card? Do we do um, press conferences for main card and then media day for lower part of the card? How do we, how do, we do this? Co-main event, main event? There's just a lot of factors in play about the market itself, who's in the card, and what they can reasonably stage in the week to make sure the media has what they have and to promote the event. So that's what I would say. It's still a kind of, a, from what I could tell, a pretty fluid situation. They seem to be siding more with the media days which I'm okay with, like, have a press conference months out to announce that you're coming and have the two headliners. You know, they did that many, many times. They still continue to do it. And then as it gets closer, have the media day because these guys, like, what are you going to do? Like, when you have them up there and they're all on this dais together and you're asking them questions, you don't get the answers you want. You've already talked to these guys probably a thousand times. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So have a different environment where you can sort of specialize. Everyone can get what they get, want from a multimedia perspective to print journalists. There you go. I'm, I'll come back to this one up here. True or false? Edgar defeats Swanson by unanimous decision. True. Dos Santos versus Miocic goes all five rounds. False. Hector Lombard fights for the title in 2015. I'll say True. Hendricks KOs Lawler in, the, in a back-and-forth battle. True. 
Ooh. GSP returns and jumps in front of Rory for the next welterweight title shot. False. Uh, I'll stay healthy and I don't do a chat sick. That's going to be impossible. Nate Diaz beats Dos Anjos uh, and fights the title, especially if Pettis is champ. Well, I don't think he beats Dos Anjos, so there's that. Rampage is still a top 10 line heavyweight. False. Eddie Alvarez goes on a win streak in 2015. Uh, impossible to say. Who, 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 you know, if they match him up against somebody great, maybe not. If they match him up with, with, you know, against guys who are a little bit you know, lower in the top 15, yeah, maybe. Anderson Silva finishes Nick Diaz in three rounds. Wow, finishes. Um, interesting. I will say true. Hard to imagine him getting finished anytime soon, though. Uh, let's see. Last week, Josh Berkman foolishly joked about throwing a fight to get out of a World Series of Fighting contract. Others have talked openly about betting on themselves to win and their corners and families making bets on them to win. Baseball has strict policies against gambling. Famously, a sign over the doorway into every MLB clubhouse states the rules against betting on baseball. College basketball, the NBA, and Asian baseball leagues have had match-fixing scandals in the last 20 years. And even the biggest soccer leagues have had recurring fights, fixing scandals within the last decade. Now, he says this person, he, he doesn't think Zufa would ever be involved because of the risks that would do to their business. I mean, if they ever found out to be doing match fixing, it would be, you know, it would be the death of the organization. So I agree with him. I don't think Zufa would ever touch that. But he says, the UFC needs a written policy on betting and lots of other behavior. But what should a policy be? It seems hugely difficult to enforce, but the corrosive impact of match fixing scandal would be hard to overstate. Um, and someone says, correctly, pretty sure most athletic commissions forbid gambling on the fights by fighters, corners, and promoters. And then another person correctly notes, fighters can gamble on themselves but not their opponent. That's true. There's already rules about it in place. Um, what should the policy be? That's a tough one. I'll have to come back to that one. I'm going to table that one because I haven't thought enough about it, but it's a good question. Uh, again, true-false. Chael fights again. False. Uh, Rory McDonald becomes a UFC welterweight champion in 2015. I will say true. Either Paul Juarez, Fitch, or Shields gets a UFC recall from being a World Series of Fighting champ. False. Bar Barack fights again. Wow, that's a tough one. I will say true. <laughs> I don't know. Nick Diaz actually retires after losing to Anderson Silva. You know... Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. UFC is sold by 2020. Uh, might be true. Redskins 100% do not make playoffs this year. I mean, I don't even think they're mathematically capable of making it this year, much less, you know, potentially capable. I mean, they might be mathematically capable, but, like, that's the worst team ever. Worst owner ever. Uh, people ask about Buakau walking out in his K-1 loss. It went to an extra round. He thought it was BS, and he walked out um, and accused K1 of all sorts of uh, uh, you know, improper behavior. What do I think about it? I think Buakal is just over the industry. That's what I think. Let's see. Personal vendetta against Mike Goldberg. Yes, as I explained at the top of the show... I have nothing personal against him. I don't know him personally. How could I make any comment about him personally? 
I'm not capable of doing it. Um, I'm strictly talking about the job he does when he puts on the headset, as difficult as it is, and I know it's difficult. Not a, I couldn't even do a job as well as he could, but I'm not trying to. I'm trying to do my own thing in my own way. I should be evaluated for the work that I do, and, and believe me, I, I hear about it, good and bad, on Twitter and various other places. Um, I would just like to see the level of quality upped. It, on the one hand, it's crazy. Like, I feel like UFC production is, on the one hand, so far advanced beyond anything else, so innovative, so interesting, in many fundamental respects. Like, I really and truly respect it, I, I, and I mean that. In other ways, they seem... Um, other portions of it just seem, uh, what's the word? I don't know how to say this. Um, just, there's a certain aesthetic about it that just seems so locked in the past. And for reasons that have to do with nothing about the quality. Like from a quality perspective, is Mike Goldberg the best guy for that job in terms of the ability that he can do? I would submit to you that he's not. So then explain to me the reasons for him being there. Oh, well, he's one of us. Well, that's not really the argument that I am particularly interested in. I'm interested in who is the best at doing this job. Even the one uh, event Matt Vesgurgian did over the guy from the MLB Network, even the one fight he did I thought was better. Have post-fight scrums been canceled? Yes, that is my understanding. Pre-fight have not, but I think post-fight have. Commentators of the MMA. Um, who is your favorite commentator in current MMA? I would say Brian Stan. Who's your least favorite? I think you know the answer to that. Your favorite MMA commentating team duo? Already answered that. Um, oh, actual commentating team duo? I would say Anik and Stan. Thoughts on Dan Hardy's commentating? I think it's excellent. And someone says, Dan Hardy should be ashamed of the pendred Umaladov fight where he was biased towards Pendred. He was a little biased towards Pendred. You know, sometimes it happens where you start focusing on one guy and the narrative becomes about one guy when, when the viewer at home is saying, well, dude, there's, first of all, there's two guys fighting and one guy's doing better than the other. Why are you continuously focusing on this? Maybe because the producers told him to or maybe not. Maybe he just sort of thought that Pendred is this guy who is, I don't know if living in Conor McGregor's shadow is the right word, but certainly his, he is a, you know, an orbit, in orbit around McGregor training on the same team, another Irish guy. He come up through the regional scene, made a name for himself. He has not blown up in the way that McGregor has, and I don't think that he will, but you get the idea. There's interest about this guy. There is a buzz about this guy, even if he fights on the prelims card. And, and, and Umaladov, there isn't much hype about him, if, if any. Um, no one really cares about him that much, just speaking candidly, at least not any part of the English-speaking world. So, um, yeah, listen, did he, did he discuss Pendred too much? Sure. Commentating is hard. It's hard to do well. So this idea that I'm not forgiving of commentators is just false. It's that over time, you have to have a certain level of ability um, and a certain level of competency about it. And I would take issue that with some of the people, not only in MMA, but in all forms of broadcasting, that do it. I would say that one of the best commentating duos, you don't have to watch soccer. I'm not telling you to watch. But there is a Scottish guy and an American guy who uh, do some of the matches, soccer matches for BN Sport that are like – Fantastic. Really good. Uh, Taylor Twelman's pretty good, too. <coughs> Anderson versus Weidman. Ten fights. In your opinion, if they were to fight ten times, how many would Anderson win? Two, maybe three. Do you real realistically see the UFC setting up a third fight between them? Yes, I do. There's a lot of title talk that just came out of nowhere. It's not by accident.
Who will fight for the title in 2015? Yes or no? Conor McGregor. Yes. Dennis Bermudez. Yes. John Dodson. Yes. Koji Horiguchi. No. Faber. Maybe. Donald Cerrone. No. Hector Lombard. Yes. Michael Bisping. No. Anthony Johnson. No. Mark Hunt. Yes. Holly Holm. Holly Holm. That's a good question. I will say yes. I don't know, though. That's a tough one. Yeah, I'm not reading that question. Okay. <laughs> oh, you guys have some funny questions today. Uh, Anderson is totally going to clobber Diaz, right? How do you see this fight going? Yeah, it's a tough one. Depends how Anderson chooses to fight, really. If he wants to make it a show and a scene and something else that it's not, I suppose anything is possible. But I think Anderson is just going to strike him on the outside to death, you know. I, I, maybe Diaz walks him down, but I don't know. That's what I say. I just think he's going to, on the outside, just tear him to pieces. But Diaz can take a shot, you know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I think Diaz is going to get beat up real bad for a few rounds, and then we'll see what happens to uh, Anderson's movement. That third round, I suspect. The third round of Diaz versus Silva is probably going to be crazy. We just saw the NBA sign a massive TV deal, one that will net them $2.68 billion a year in TV rights deals. Escalating, but on average, yes. Their current contract pays them $938 million a year, obviously a huge pay raise. My question is, do you see Fox offering the UFC more money, it's currently estimated at $100 million a year, after their contract expires due to the current climate, or is the UFC stagnant or declining in this area of things? It's a really difficult question. I have heard a lot of competing theories. So one theory that I have heard is that, look, and for example, look what happened today. Just today, right before this chat, HBO Go, now that's not the live service, it's a streaming service, but it's all um, archived content. But HBO Go, you can now get independent of any cable package. You can just get it, starting in 2015. You can be a cord cutter, and you can still get HBO Go, meaning you can get all their shows, not while they air live. It's not a live streaming service, but it is a streaming service. So you can get – I have HBO Go. Now I have it through DirecTV, but it's great. It's great. You want to watch Game of Thrones from yesterday? You can watch it. You want to watch movies? You can watch it. You want to watch Latino shows? You want to watch documentaries, sports? It's all on there. It's all on there. It's great. You can now get that without having to go to HBO. So my point is the following. One theory is that what is keeping people on TV it is clearly more than anything else, probably sports, live sports. And the value of these sports deals is increasing dramatically. And so one theory is that just as the NBA's rights fees have just exploded, and NBA is, I think, almost number two right now to the NFL in terms of the American landscape. Um, you know, it's in Canada as well, but you get the idea. That just as that's going up, sports generally, from MLS to UFC to motorsports to whatever, all of their rights fees are going to take a bump. I, I, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. Now, that eventually, I think, will hit a bubble. But for the interim, that seems to be the case. There's another competing theory, though. The other competing theory is, okay, listen, um, ESPN and Turner uh, might be willing to pay these astronomical sums for 
these really high value properties, NBA or NFL or things like that. Now, Turner doesn't show NBA, uh, NFL, but you get the idea. They do for NBA. And that, that has nothing to do with what Fox might pay for UFC. In fact, they may decide that it's, you know, Fox pays for NASCAR and for some television rights fees for the NFL. And as these rights continue to go up, as rights fees continue to go up, maybe it leaves less for the niche sports. I, I would venture to say what you will see with UFC is that, and I've had this debate with a lot of people, everyone says that the numbers that UFC does on Fox, on especially Fox Sports 1, are really good for that network, and they are. Now, they, they, they're pretty far away from having set the records. In fact, just this year, I believe it was the uh, Giants-Cardinals game just did over $4 million on Fox Sports 1. You know, UFC has never touched that. But generally speaking, night in, night out on a Saturday night, UFC is good for about 700000 or more to watch their shows. And certainly, an Ultimate Fighter has had a 40% increase on DVR. So this is valuable content to them. You know, their Fox Sports Live show sometimes only do 100,000 or less. And that's like their prize, you know, uh, um, like ESPN Sports Center type show, high news and highlights. And so in that sense, they're very valuable to the Fox franchise. What does that mean for Big Fox, though? Because I don't see how you can argue they haven't been anything but underwhelming there. Not bad, certainly. In some moments, very good. But like that, you know, like that. Um, they win those coveted demos, but it doesn't really have this explosive appeal on Big Fox. While it's got a really consistent high level for Fox Sports 1. I would suspect that what you will see is when this deal is up in three and a half years, and that's a long time away, so we'll see what happens between now and then. But as I read it now, I would expect the $100 million to go up, but not dramatically so. Not dramatically so. Maybe 120 at most 150 a year. And I guess 150 a year would be a pretty big increase, you know. But I guess what I'm saying is don't expect it to go from the equivalent of 938 million a year to 2.68 billion a year. I don't think it's going to triple. I think it'll go up by uh, a healthy fraction, but a fraction. Um, or a fractional increase, I, sh I should say. Because they are valuable to them. And it's a question of what can they really add in terms of turning that corner. Um, and USC has been very valuable on Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2. Some, in some sense, has been valuable on Fox, but not in a way that um, sets them apart necessarily from other sports, whereas I think their continual ability to get 700000 or more on Fox Sports 1 makes them a really easy, no-brainer property for that, for that channel. There's an interesting article by Richard Deitch, or Deitch, I pronounce his last name, I always get it confused, but he talks about uh, talks to, rather, Keith Olbermann, and about they think that what happened was ESPN brought Keith Olbermann back for any number of reasons, not least of which was to counteract the, the rise and launch of Fox Sports 1. And he basically argues that, you know, listen, you can never, he basically goes on a roundabout, long-winded way of saying it's impossible to know exactly what will happen with Fox Sports 1, but that... Whatever growth that they had, it's not going to get much better. It might get a little bit better, but it's not, it's not going to get much. Um, he, his job was to make sure that that rise was stymied um, on ESPN2, which, by the way, I think arguably gets better ratings than uh, Fox Sports 1 day in, day out anyway. Exceptions abound, of course. Anyway, long story short, it's worth reading about what he thinks the potential for Fox Sports 1 really is. How much more is there for a channel to give that is so different and so much better and so much more necessary than what fans and sports consumers already get from the myriad of ESPN content, both digitally and from television. What's going on with the uniforms? I haven't heard anything. 
All right, there's one soccer question here. Is Falcao being wasted at United? Uh, I don't think so. Should he have stayed at AS Monaco and hoped that Madrid would come from... Madrid cannot... Real Madrid, you see they're talking about adding another midfielder. They cannot add anybody else, man. Like, did you guys watch Hamas Rodriguez last night? When you see him playing in a, in a more... He's, in, he's on the midfield behind Falcao on that left side, but when he's in a much more attacking posture, that he's able to light up that field, both with interesting passing. Um, he still scores mostly outside the box, but... Um, it's just his play is so much more dominant and dynamic when he's able to move forward on that. And then Real Madrid has him in a much more defensive posture, understandably. You know, you got Bale the ball hog up front and then, you know, CR7. But um, it's just fun to see Hamas play in his natural position. It's just so much better. Um, interesting question. Luke, what are your thoughts on the Gracie breakdown videos of violent street fights? I have not watched them. I have not watched them since. The gentleman in New York City, Staten Island, who was illegally selling cigarettes, harmlessly so, but nevertheless committing a crime, um, when he was choked by the police, it is my recollection, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Gracie Breakdown said after the fact, while using this you know, rather disturbing footage, that they, in their expert opinion, whatever he died from had nothing to do with the choke. And then, of course, the autopsy report comes out, and they blame it directly on it, among other factors, of course. He seemed to be a very unhealthy gentleman. But you get the idea. Um, you know, once you start doing stuff like that, I'm out. You know, I'm out. If you're putting up, and someone says they had, a few weeks ago they posted a video with a young fellow from Brazil was, where he was choked to death. The video was absolutely horrible. And from the title of the video and the way they, in which they acted, I truly think that educating fans on how dangerous fighting is comes in at number two to educating people on the Gracie name and keeping it in people's heads for them. I haven't seen this video. It sounds terrible. I don't know what the answer to that is. They should stick to MMA. I mean, I understand that, listen, part of the Gracie appeal is self-defense. I get it. I get it. Part of the jiu-jitsu's appeal is self-defense. There's a lot of move towards sport, but there's a huge portion of the jiu-jitsu community that doesn't want to lose that connectivity to this is something that every person can use to defend themselves. And here's what happens when it goes right, and here's what happens when it goes wrong. Um, that's fine. But, you know... I'm interested in their opinions in MMA. They seem to be nice guys, but I'm out on breakdowns over horrible incidents that happen in the street. Um, does your show rate higher than the MMA beat? How about this? They both do really well, especially when I'm on the beat. Uh, Joe Rogan Podcast. Has Joe Rogan ever asked you to do his podcast? I noticed he follows you on Twitter, so he must be a fan of yours. Would you do it in a second? I'd do it. I'd fly to LA tomorrow to do it. But, you know, he's got, I think he's like so booked up. He's still, he's asking people in like to be in 2015, you know, so whatever. If it ever comes, great. If it doesn't, um, you know, that's fine. Okay, BJJ World Champions. This is one of the most improperly used phrases in MMA. Yes and no. Everyone who fights in the UFC is somehow a BJJ world champion. I'm beginning to think that people have no idea what it truly means to be a world champion. The criteria is simple. One, win at the IBJJF world championship level. Two, at the black belt level, adult division only. Why I think this matters is because there are a lot of MMA guys who compete in grappling tournaments and claim to have, in Brian Caraway's words, the best grappling in MMA. But because there are so many who claim this, it gives viewers an improper lens of world-class BJJ. Gunnar Nelson is an example of this. Ben Henderson. Both are great, but neither have won any world championships that matters. This should put people like Jacare, BJ Penn, Demi and Maya, and Fabrizio Verdum in another category, which makes beating them a huge deal, especially if it's done in a fight 
that is primarily grappling. So here's what I would say to that. For MMA purposes, for UFC purposes, I would prefer that they only call people world champions who've done on the criteria you've mentioned. Adult, black belt, not masters, IBJJF, okay? I would prefer that. Or ADCC. I would, I would classify that as being a you know, world champion too, um, depending on the division anyway. But from the jiu-jitsu side of things, um, I am a little more sympathetic to those guys calling themselves world championships because – you ha- in many cases, you have to win those world championships to then get promoted up the chain. In fact, um, Ryan Hall's fiance, Jen Flannery, congrats to her. She got her black belt last night. She just won the brown belt world championships in Nogi. Um, and had, you know, she's had a tough year, man. She had multiple surgeries, and it was a crazy thing, you know. For the jiu-jitsu world, having these iterative uh, ways to measure development and, you know, who is the best no-gi brown belt in the world? Who is the best no-gi or gi blue belt in the world? And these kind of things matter. You want to know that. I agree that for the uninitiated audience, it's best to say and truly understanding that you can see guys who've won world titles at blue, purple, and brown, and then they can't win any at black. Black is a completely different beast, you know, and, and that deserves to be noted. But I don't want to go on the record as saying – that these accomplishments are insignificant or meaningless or not valuable in some kind of way of understanding who's what. If you win the Mundials and Purple Belt, particularly if you win it in your division and absolute, you're the best Purple Belt in the world. That's, that's, a, that's a no bull s claim. And I usually will then mean you get promoted to Brown Belt right after that. You know, um, So there's a value to them, both in understanding hierarchy and, and, and also in one's personal development. There's a value in sort of figuring out these things. It just comes with the understanding that the black belt division is a completely its own, separate, extraordinarily competitive universe, categorically more so than brown and blue and purple and white. Let's go to Twitter because I haven't even looked at Twitter yet. What would be a bigger upset? Cat KOs Ronda... Or Nick KOs Silva. Got to be Cat KOs Ronda. Because Silva's already been knocked out. DC submits Jones. That would be pretty big. But even then, Ronda being undefeated, beating everyone so quickly. Uh, Conor McGregor says he wants to fight before he fights for the title. Who do you think is a good matchup? First of all, I don't believe him. Is it possible for Diaz to suffer a humble defeat? If Silva beats him, what excuses will he use this time? Sure, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Um, it would have to be thorough. There would have to be this sort of mutual admiration. You know, recall that Joe Schilling had this sort of bonding experience with Nate Diaz after the two beat the crap out of each other. I think if it was close and, and there was a part of, of you know, if, listen, if Anderson Silva fights Nick Diaz on the terms that Nick Diaz prefers and Nick Diaz still loses, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's necessarily impossible, I should say, that he turns out to post a press conferences saying he was robbed or it was BS or something like that, particularly if he gets knocked out clean, which I don't expect, but still. That fight's getting more and more appealing the more I talk about it. Um, Is it me or is Jake Shields dominant in every organization besides UFC? I thought he did pretty well in UFC, but sure. It's going to be easier 
Level of competition. Uh, let's see. Would you rather expand your product globally where there, where there is less competitors or domestically? I'd rather do a mix of the two. Do you think Glory will eventually partner up with the UFC and broadcast on Fox Sports 1 if Bellator is non-existent? Uh, no, I don't. I think what Glory is trying to do, and no one's really told me this, but certainly this is my observation. They're trying to, like, I mean, they're, in some ways it's piggybacking MMA's growth, but in other ways it's trying to piggyback MMA's growth so that MMA fans then tune in and sort of see there's a differentiation there. That's really a sort of a separate kind of offering. It's a different feel. It's a different look. It's a, it's a different kind of outcome that you should expect. And so um, this idea that they would want to sort of hop in bed, not that, I mean, maybe they would. Maybe they want to. They're certainly doing it with Viacom in many ways and Spike and Bellator. But part of me feels like at some point they're going to want to stand on their own. It's like a very separate, clear sports entity. Um, and, again, I, I, maybe they would just take the opportunity with Fox because it would be too good to turn down. But another part of me feels like they, they are trying to do something different than just be UFC light or, or Bellator light or whatever the case may be. Luke, how big of a mistake is it for UFC not to bother getting more Ronaldo? Um, you know, it's a little too late, I guess, because Showtime's loving him. Uh, Zufa credit rating. What do you make of the S&P's recent downgrade of Zufa's credit rating? I am fascinated with the business side of MMA, and from the reports I have been reading, it seems as if the UFC carries a lot of debt, which is not all surprising for large companies. It's not particularly surprising. I don't think it's that alarming. Some of these credit ratings are totally bogus. I wouldn't say it's insignificant. I wouldn't say it's overly significant either. It's something worth monitoring in 2015, particularly since 2014 has been, by all accounts, even by UFC brass, a bit of a down year. 2015 going to be a bit of more of an up year. Lots of reasons to, to speculate. Jesus, it is today is that day. Lots of reasons to speculate with the return of Pettis, with the you know Nick Diaz and and uh, uh, Cormier and Jones and all these things sort of happening, kicking off 2015. Uh, it, that should be a great year for them. I will say though, one thing that sort of caught my attention was if you haven't been following this, um, see, there was a documentary that came out, I believe, called Blackfish. Or maybe Black. Yeah, right. Is that? Let me just make sure here. Yeah, called Blackfish. And um, it was a really well-received documentary, by and large. And it's about the mistreatment uh, of orcas, of killer whales, by um, predominantly SeaWorld. And that documentary had a massive impact on their business. It has damaged their ability to draw people to the parks. They've had to uh, at least have set aside plans to expand the size of their tanks. Um, it's a publicly traded company, and they're stank. Uh, they're... Um, their, their stank. Their uh, stocks tanked. Um, and in addition to that, um, their credit rating was down to BB minus, which is the same one Zufa's at now. So Zufa and SeaWorld actually have equivalent credit ratings. Now, again, um, I, I'm not going to ring the alarm bells by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, I think it'd be, I think they've been this low before, even when they had a hot streak. So, not to say it's insignificant, but let's see what happens in 2015. If problems continue, it'd be a little bit more noteworthy carrying that much debt, but that's that much debt for a company this size um, with this kind of revenue stream is not, and those kind of costs, of course, too, um, 
is not particularly unusual, not ideal by any stretch of the imagination, but not so that we need to panic about it. Let's see what happens in 2015, and then we can circle back to the conversation. What one fight in particular are you looking forward to the most in the remaining fight cards of this year? There's a couple of them. One, Anthony Pettis, Gilbert Melendez. I know it's not the fight that everybody wanted right up front, but it's the fight that we have, and I think it's a huge test of Pettis. I think I want to see that one for sure. It's a smaller fight, but to me it's a really, like a very hugely important fight for his career. Jake Ellenberger and Kelvin Gastelum on that Mexico card. If Ellenberger loses that, boy, what do you say about the rest of his career, you know? Um, I like Ellenberger a lot. I've been a big believer in his for a long time. He's got big power, athletic, um, crazy story, him and his brother. You know, nice guy. Maybe he gets into the commentary thing. They've been using him a little bit in the Fox Studios. Um, he's warming up to it. A lot of good things to say about Jake Ellenberger, but you have to wonder if he loses that. Is that officially the end of him as a contender? And moreover, is that then the coronation of Gastelum as a contender? A Gastelum I have repeatedly underrated. Part of me wants to pick Ellenberger right now, and I know that I've been wrong about both those guys a lot. You know, even though I've, I, when I say wrong about Ellenberger, I mean I like him a lot, and he's been, you know, as a one fights, I thought he should have won or could have won. In any case, that fight to me is really kind of compelling. Now, there's any number of other fights to pick from that are great that you might love and, and debuting um, UFC fighters or, or whoever you like. But for me, those two fights kind of stand out. I, I'm really kind of curious to see what happens with that. That Obviously, I want to see what happens with Aldo and Mendez, if for no other reason than it involves Conor McGregor. I think that's another interesting way to look at it, too. But those two fights at pinpoint. I'm a big believer in Anthony Pettis. I think he's one of these guys who could be a bigger star but needs to stay healthy in order to make that happen. If he can beat Melendez and then stay on a hot streak and stay healthy, I think he can be a really big star. I know the UFC really was trying to put a lot of wind in his sails, you know, and they really believe in him. I can say that for a fact. Um, so we'll see. But those, those, I mean, and again, those, I'm not suggesting that those are the only two or the two that you should like, but you asked me which ones. Those ones have caught my eye. You know, I, Ellenberger was a guy I interviewed years ago for Real Fighter magazine. And he was my part of my next big thing feature. Um, and he has been a big success. But I, if he loses to Gastelum, you have to wonder, is this, the, uh, is this the end of him as a contender, you know? Official end, anyway. Someone says better gig, fantasy sports expert or MMA journalist? Um, the better gig would be fantasy sports expert because MMA journalist and fantasy sports expert both talk about a lot of bull s. Um, by the way, is there a bigger snake oil salesman racket than fantasy sports advice? These guys are routinely wrong. I mean, routinely. And yeah, I do predictions, and my you know I'm decidedly mediocre, somewhere between high fifties and low sixties percentile in terms of my lifetime correct rates. You know, above average, not great. But I just I don't give it to you like real advice. Like I'm not telling you you should put money on your mortgage on this. And again, fantasy sports aren't either for the most part. But these no one ever holds their feet to the fire at all. You know, like there's never really any recompense for wrongdoing. It's it's sort of weird. Um, and they're they they and, and anyone can be a fantasy sports expert. Now some are better than others. I have heard some pretty good ones. But of all the guys who parade themselves as such, it's a lot of snake oil salesmanship. Uh, Patrick Wyman and Mike Fagan picked you as one of the best MMA media. I heard that. Thank you. Where are you going to put your award? I don't know. Um, I don't think I'm getting a trophy anytime soon. Who would you pick as the best investigative reporter, best researcher? Uh, Brent's up there. I think Stephen Morocco's up there. 
lot of good guys up there. Uh, best long form rider, tie between Ben Folks and Chuck Mindenhall. Also, Sean Elshadi nipping at their heels. Best technical analysis, probably going to go to Mike Reardon or Connor uh, Rubush or Jack Slack. Best beat reporter. Um, I don't know who I don't know how who's covered in that one. So hard for me to answer for that one. Best beat reporter. I mean, um, I don't know what that means exactly in this context. Anyway, uh, let's do one or two more. Which one did you like filming more, MMA beat or MMA uncensored? They're completely different to film. Completely different to film. Uh, MMA beat is like. Quick, easy go. I prefer that in some ways. But Every Man Sensor was on TV. It had much more fun. It was a heightened atmosphere. So I prefer that in some ways. I'm happy to be able to do, to do either. And like I, I know that sounds, oh, that's the worst answer. No, it's the truth, man. When you get a chance to, be, to do MMA Beat, you have to be happy about it. When you get a chance to do MMA Uncensored, you have to be like truly thrilled about it. Um, and I am. Can a legal case be made against a governing body such as the NAC? Yes. The answer to that is yes, and these things can and often do go to district court. The problem is the states in which it happens, even when I believe there's a strong case that the Athletic Commission has erred in some capacity, the courts are highly deferential to other arms of the state. So it becomes not merely that you are arguing your case, but you are arguing that the state should, for lack of a better description, slap down, censure, or change the decision of another arm of the state. That is very difficult to do. All right. We have to get out of here. Uh, we're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. Get up. Sign up. Stand up for your rights. <laughs> Please. I'm sorry I have stumbled and mumbled like Chris Berman my whole way through this little podcast of mine. I appreciate you joining. Follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Email me, Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Some, some production changes coming your way here very soon. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, coverage all weekend of anything that happens. See you guys in about a week. Until then, stay frosty.